That'll do. Yeah, okay, cool. All right. Uh, let me bring me the bleakers. <laughs> there we go. For oh, just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, so we've been recording for a few minutes already. All right, All right three, two, one. It's Mark here from the Oz DeFi podcast and Oz DeFi Association. You'll know me from being one of the founders. I'm here all the time for a lot of the videos, doing a lot of the content. Uh, we've also got Shahira doing amazing things up in uh, Queensland. And Rob, you've spoken to her recently, so there's a whole lot of connectedness there. But as you saw from the intro, we've got an awesome OG in the space here. Rob Morris, thank you very much for coming. Thanks, Bob. Having you. And yes, yeah, Shahira's great. I had a lovely novelty then with her yesterday. So um, it, it's really amazing that we've got all these uh, very interested people all around the country that we've been able to help us with the association that have been able to help us uh, by coming on the podcasts and stuff and talking about the amazing things, things that they're doing. And all of that help and coordination and everything, it speaks to the ethos of what you're about. And before we get into all of that, can you just give us a bit of background for people that may have been living under a rock that don't know you? How the heck did you get into crypto and Web3? Yeah, so uh, so I started messing around with technology in the 80s, because um, I'm old, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, starting with the Commodore 64 in particular. And so uh, I have a background in the rise of the internet, bulletin board systems before that, um, cryptography. Um, I ran an ISP, for example, uh, at the dawn of when. Oh. Um, and so I know a bunch of... Uh, people that you might describe as cyberpunks, hackers, and etc. Uh, so one of them sent me the Bitcoin white paper the day it dropped. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't have heard of it. Mm -hmm. So less credit to me. But uh, I did read it, and uh, and so that's what got me into the space. You're probably um, one of the first people in the world to, to read it. Yeah, probably. Probably. I uh, I mean, we were mining it pretty soon after that as well and did a bunch of stuff like that. So it was... It was uh, it was a very different time when it dropped, and I still remember very vividly reading it and thinking, trying to figure out how to bridge the world that they talked about to the world that we actually lived in, and, mm -hmm. and trying to figure out like how that would actually unfold and whether it was possible. Do, do you remember how you felt at the time, like you know what kind of position you were in in life and stuff? Like, was this something that like just really resonated with you, given that this came after the GFC? And I'm not sure how you were affected by that at all, but like, yeah, what was the feeling? For you at the time of like reading it it was a little bit like we didn't have this whole mythology around it back then right so i just thought that satoshi nakamoto was a privacy conscious anon developer i looked him up and couldn't find anything on the net um the uh you know i just yeah it was it, it didn't like honestly it, it felt a bit weird like you know code is not money it felt like just like uh, another technology that i was playing around with and yeah. mining it i didn't really expect it to do exactly what it did um even though it was kind of conceptually possible that it would um but then over the coming years i got mm -hmm. the opportunity to think about it a lot and uh and so as I thought about it, that became more and more clear that that was where the world was going um, and the applications of this technology, like both in terms of money and more broadly. So I, I guess I've just had like, does it feel like crypto is not to me because it's been 15 years too? That, that's really interesting that you say that, um, you know, some people have said to us, oh, you're community people now. It's like kind of have always been like without overtly 
saying we we run an association yep. in all the work that i've done before there's always been the networking aspect and more interested in being the connector between people so it feels like we've always kind of done this kind of stuff so it seems like this is kind of made for someone like you to come into um did you see anything that was similar to a bitcoin or was it really groundbreaking like at the time because i'm sure people especially the size of punks would be would have been looking at this to satoshi or whoever they or there was, uh, there was yeah. prior installation, uh, obviously, yeah. right, which have, I'm sure everyone's familiar with. Mm. Um, and uh, honestly, the I think that the idea for Bitcoin was inspired by the remailer community because you had this sort of like, yeah, so these cypherpunks essentially wanted to be able to message each other without revealing who they were. Ah, uh, um, okay. So the sense was a kind of a game, a game that everyone take, took very seriously in the yeah. community, and so. Um, the problem was that you couldn't charge anyone um, to use these services without them identifying themselves. And so in some sense, I feel like you know, Bitcoin arose to solve the problem of cypherpunks being able to anonymously pay for remailers. Yeah. That, was, that was my feeling at the time. It, it makes sense contextually at the time. Um, and I guess other people had taken different concepts from it, like all the way to financial freedom and and much more now seeing because you know how many years have passed since uh since since we got there but you know if we go into the the journey we covered it off with a little bit in the intro and check out the blog that's going to talk about all this kind of stuff there's going to be follow-ups here but uh because we could just do a show all on your background oh, at some point so there's stories that i could tell um, and, you know, maybe some of those shows are going to be have, have to be at a bar. You know, we've got something coming up at Lulu. So, so you know, check that out there. But let's get into, let's jump ahead. Let's get into a my machine, jump ahead yeah. for where you're at now and things that you're focusing on. How would you describe that to someone if, I don't know, they just met you in an elevator or something like that about what you're focusing on right now? Yeah, so the, the shortest way that I describe it is cooperative coordination. Um, but essentially what I'm working on is uh, is the technologies and approach to positive sum games at scale. In other words, how do we, uh, how do we change uh, the way that we do things to incentivize more positive sum coordination? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the things that stand in our way to do that? Um, and so, you know, I'm sure you, I know that you are aware of the iterative uh, prisoner's dilemma, for example. Yep. Um, and the, the very short version of that is that if you, um, you know, I think that the easiest explanation of that is if you like stamp some, uh, a pair of people up in front of an entire audience and you offer them a hundred dollars and you say, uh, person A, uh, split a hundred dollars, whoever you like, but you're doing it in front of everyone. Mm. Um, and then there's going to be a bunch of other games where you get a hundred dollars and split it between two people amongst that audience. Then what will generally happen is that the person will be much more generous than if they were doing that in private. That's essentially the iterative presence dilemma put in a very simple way. Okay. Um, and so I would argue or a perspective that I would provide about this is that most people most of the time do what the environment that they're in incentivizes. Mm. And so what one of the structure, what's the structure that we exist in or the environment that we exist in? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it's almost deterministic at scale. People talk about Moloch, for example, yep. Yep. and all of these coordination problems, but essentially we should look at the uh, the structures that we're in, what they incentivize, and fix it there. If we don't do that, we probably can't fix the meta crisis. We probably can't fix a bunch of these essentially like uh, 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 entrenched zero sum games, adversarialism, factionalism, not being able to kind of coordinate and solve problems. Like we have a lot of things that flow from coordination failure mm-hmm. that we can't fix if we don't come up with better ways to do that. 
and they, I, I know I need to give short answers on this podcast. So I'll say one more thing about it. I have a thesis I call the death of Machiavelli. Um, and as the joke goes, Machiavelli's not dead. He's just really very tired. Um, but what I'm essentially referring to is that uh, um, I am arguing that positive-sum coordination games are starting to be at an advantage to zero-sum coordination games, i.e. Mm. open interoperable collaboration uh, and the momentum that flows from that and the network effects that flows from that is starting to become more advantageous than Monopoly, right? Which is wild because that's never been true before. And yeah, as far as I can tell. Growing up, you know, kids play Monopoly, you learn the last man standing or whatever it is, you learn to cut deals, you learn all about capitalism and stuff. And just for those folks that may not be aware of the zero-sum game, you know, examples of zero-sum games, we see it everywhere, but can you yep. give us uh, some... I mean, really, a zero-sum game is just uh, it's just any situation that's adversarial, where it's perp- it's it's you versus other actors in the system. But a positive-sum game is, you know, is where you win together. So you can think of it as win against versus win together of yeah. hard systems. Uh, it's it's really interesting because like Web three really hits you in the face with community, and this is all about doing things together and the whole concept of DAOs, right? Like lowering those well. A, it's lowering barriers because we've got tools and technologies that are more widely available and open source helps that. But with the DAO, what was interesting, one of the first things that we learned with that concept was that, oh, right, you don't need to have this structure where it's only management that will take the majority or that this company setup doesn't need to take all of the money there if you have a lot of it automated, whether it's Forex hedging or whatever it is that the company is doing. You can now share more of the profits more widely. And so... You know, the, the DAOs are going through a few um, iterations and stuff at the moment, but how does the work that you're doing translate itself into um, what we see in the Web3 world? Like, where are you kind of helping the most? Do you think it's in the DAO and coordination around that, or is it in other areas? Like, where do we see the the work that you're, you're trying to push? I'm interested in both. Uh, I mean, you know, we... We don't have a lot of practice, essentially, at doing this yet, um, so we're not very good at it. Yeah. And so I think it's really interesting and important to explore the edges of that, you know, just as a human practice, right? Like, how do we cooperate together and coordinate together in a way that is not as reliant on power and control and hierarchy and is more reliant on operation, essentially? Um, and so I'm working on... I'm interested in that and any organization that is working on the meta crisis um, and, and doing doing something that's like interesting, I'm interested to support that kind of good work. It, explain the, the, the meta crisis, like for yep. you know, those that and we'll, we'll have the links down below that you can click on and all that kind of stuff, but just, um, yeah, from your own words, like what, what is it to you? The meta crisis is a crisis of crises. Uh, um, very better. Yep, very meta. Um, some people have framed it well as essentially the intersection between uh, Moloch, Mars, and Mimum, uh, aka uh, uh, war, coordination failure, and greed, essentially. Um, but uh, the meta crisis is essentially uh, this sort of uh, uh, sticky set of problems where we can all see things like tragedy of the commons, like in the environment's failing, and and other things that essentially negatively affect us all, but we can empower us to be able to like do it. Essentially, it's like the, the, the factors that are causing that to happen more and more. The 
Now, Moloch is definitely something that we've seen some great podcasts out there that, that cover. But just going back to something you said before about the, the environment, um, a classic case of this is the Milgram uh, experiments, which for folks that may not be familiar, set of experiments. When was it? Was it the 60s? So it was, yeah, it was a long time ago. I uh, think that they might have slightly different ethical guidelines. These days. They, they might. Um, but if there's a movie about it, there's definitely documentaries. But uh, can you tell the viewers what the, the whole Melbourne thing was about? I mean, there's been so many of these. I think, like, I think actually, like, a more simple one was, you know, when the, the I think maybe it was even the Nazis that I remember, they'd have like the, the buzzer experiment where they actually have a dire where, you know, a random person would essentially like choose from zero to 10 of how much they electrocute somebody. Yeah. You know, based on questions, I guess they're getting asked. And then they would tell me things about the person being electrocuted as like that they're a criminal or this, and then they would, ex- you know, see how far people would go. I mean, it, the Milgram experiment was like the school kids, right? Was it school kids? Yeah, it might've been your money in school kids yeah, and stuff like they, that. And they put them into like a kind of power control could have set up in a closed experiment. Oh, yeah. actually you might be thinking of something else. I think I know the one that you were talking about, but yeah. the, the neuron from what I remember was um, you've got an authority figure telling you to continue asking questions and all you hear on the other side, so I don't see Rob, for example, like I wouldn't see you, but I would just hear your screams when you'll get yeah. a question drop. So you, the yeah. actor, were purposely getting these questions wrong. And I'm here in the pain and asking to, should I stop? Should I keep going? Your authority figure always on hell and go. Yeah. So it's, I'm not saying that's exactly what's going on now. You can, we can put the tinfoil hat on or off as much as we want, but it's, it does speak to that environment that, you know, leads people to do certain things. And yeah. to your point, like as much as, I think that's what you're trying to make before, like people may want to do a good thing, yeah. right? And we are like cooperative, but how can that happen when we're not in an environment that's conducive to yep. do that, right? I would argue that most people, most of the time, do what the system incentivizes, but also that people want to be collective, generally, mm-hmm. as long as their needs are met. So if someone's needs are met first, it's kind of like, you know, you're on the airplane, they say, if the airplane's kind of crashing or whatever, yeah. put the, get the mask on yourself first. Humans have to do that. That's unreasonable. You can't expect people not to do that. Yeah. The thing I understand about that, though, right, is humans have complex needs. So we have like trauma, we have emotional needs, we have a bunch of stuff going on. Um, and, and not being bored is a need as well, right? And so humans get bored very easily. And so there's all of these things going on. And so the extent to which our needs are met is the extent to which we're going to act selfishly and get those needs first. Yeah. And then there's like essentially like these fast and slow feedback loops that feed into that, which, which is part of what creates this effect. See, but I think we can affect those things. And I think there's two ways we can do that primarily. One of them is essentially the, the way in which we as humans uh, uh, collaborate and coordinate and work with each other. Mm-hmm. And the second is essentially like the technology that we use that shapes our environment. Yeah. So to your earlier question, I'm working both novel protocols that would help to facilitate an environment that, that makes it easier for us to do positive summer coordination. Mm-hmm. And easier, I mean more advantageous yeah. because whatever is advantageous will win. Yeah. So if it's not more advantageous, it won't win. Uh, there's also like a cup half full and a cup half empty thing in yeah. uh, positive sum versus zero sum coordination. So if you look at any coordination system, sorry, I'm, I hope I'm not being too technical. No, please, please. Think like, for example, in, in crypto, we design systems so that people acting selfishly will produce any collective outcome, right? This is essentially uh, one of the engineering problems by the team generals, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And so you can't design a positive sum system that 
it has to be resistant to adversarial attacks. Otherwise, it won't be sustainable. So you have to have both. That's like, you can't just be like, you know, link hands and put a flower wreath in our hair and say everything's going to work out. That's just wishful thinking. You get shambled over by the folks that are, yeah. Inversely, we don't want to lean into this sort of misanthropic uh, uh, view that humans are just selfish, that everyone's out for themselves. Because if you do that, that's what you get. And they're both true in their own way. And so it's like, how do you become optimistic and, and, uh, and positive about humans and what we can do together? Mm. How do you learn how to trust other people and in what circumstances and what drives that? And I think that there's just a bunch of things that are really important, like people having their attachment needs met. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine a modern social network, any community will trend towards the lowest common denominator or the lowest quality of the people in the network and the highest safety preferences. So if you imagine something like Twitter, what happens is you've got people both dragging it down in terms of the behavior yeah. and dragging it up in terms of the demands of what the pool should be. And so what you get is this sort of perfect storm that leads to authoritarian censorship, essentially. And the way you fix that is by creating systems that are better at meeting humans' attachment needs. Mm -hmm. So as a thought experiment, imagine taking uh, a group of uh, uh, abuse survivors who uh, you know, have a lot of emotional needs and might want a degree of certainty in the environment that they're in because otherwise it's going to be like really hard for them versus the peop a group of people that really like what they need is to really experience things and it's open in a way as possible. Try putting those two groups together, create one set of rules that work without them. Yeah. And you'll quickly see it's pretty hard. Yeah. So what we want to do is we want to separate out like people allow them to cluster together organically we don't want to tell them how to do it yeah organically uh based on what their needs are so who are we what are we here to do uh what we meet our needs how do we treat each other and this is essentially what we you know like an evolutionary organization structure so we move from meritocratic to evolutionary structures oh, where yeah you stop people stop telling other people what to do and you coordinate essentially by alignment instead of control and so the upside of that is more people get their needs met. Mm. And as people more people get their needs met, that means we can play more positive sum games. And that comes from belonging, shared values, shared meaning, being able to contribute something valuable, being valued for it, and these kinds of things. I think that's where it, it's not been easy uh, given, and I'm not saying capitalism is, is wrong at all. It's just that we, we should always be looking at ways to improve current systems. Uh, as much as uh, I am very on all for decentralized technology, we have seen, you know, a common philosophy that comes out of this is that, uh, and we've seen it with things that haven't quite worked, is that you decentralize until it hurts. You just try to centralize as much as you can, then you centralize until it works because yeah. there are elements of centralization there. Now, that's not to say that we do things exactly the way that we've done it in the past, like the current um, kind of banking system that the way that we have uh, fractionalized reserve banking, it has led to a lot of great things like credit creation, but there's also all of this uh, adverse debt. Now, um, going back to a point that you, you have- well, We don't want to throw the baby out with the bum. No, no. Um, you just want to improve it and stuff, right? It's never going to be perfect. There's a lot about the current system that's great that we rely on. There's also a lot that's not great that we should try and improve. And technology can help us around for, for meaningful improvement. We, we neither want dystopian 
like a dystopian future where humans are controlled and can't get their needs met, nor do we want cascade consensus failure where nobody can agree on anything and nothing can happen. We want something between those two points, ideally, that's stable and works. Now, interestingly, I don't know where this part comes in, but I just get the the image of a system where uh, we're not cooperative. For example, it seems like it's a system of finite resources and a system where um, it's kind of like last man standing is the eventual winner versus a positive sum kind of system where once we reach some sort of plateau, mm. we then, because we are all collaborative and cooperative, we we are in, induced, so we, we are incentivized to take us beyond what was the plateau before. And if you think about how the heck are we going to travel to the stars, we need systems like this. Maybe that it's like what we've got in Star Trek. I don't know. We're getting closer. Yeah. So, so, and, and I think that that is a very, very much an interesting area for people to, to get into because crypto should not just be about, Hey, I'm going to make money for myself and stuff. Sure. It's, it's going to help you provide that like financial freedom, um, depending on what you're doing, you've got more uh, options there. We're starting to see this um, integration between like blockchain rails and, you know, the, the things that it's really good at, automation and master payments and things like that being seen in the everyday. But what's it going to take for people to see these better coordination systems that you're working on? What, what do they need to do? I mean, so for starters, uh, I think you can understand uh, the decentralized ledger technology as continuing the work that the internet did. So the internet essentially kins middleman layers um, uh, by making it more efficient to do that thing. Yeah. And uh, crypto networks are a way of embodying um, essentially a set of rules in a way that you don't have to trust. It's not like you, there's no trust required, which is one of the things that people get wrong. It just, yeah. it, it reduces the degree of trust required and it makes attack more expensive than defense, which is really important because that means that in the parts that matter, we can slow down the ability to subvert the system by self-interested behavior if we design it right. Now, we've had this whole explosion of crypto as a speculative asset, but the same tools that it allows to do that allows to do all, encode any kind of value system, any kind of incentive system, right? Which is where the idea of regenerative finance comes from. It's the irony of it. The same tools that if only FTX actually used blockchain tools, we mm. might not have had the situation that we're in, but you know, maybe we needed that because we needed this lesson. Otherwise we were going on a pathway that we yeah. just was unsustainable. But yeah, what do you, what do you think about that? I mean, I, you know, the, the, the Buddhists have a sort of a, a, a framing um, that, you know, that's a nice path, that's a lovely path, and you can, like, know the path and read about it and talk about it, but it doesn't matter if you don't walk on it. And they're like, that's not, not going to do you any good. Yeah, uh, it doesn't matter what systems we have, uh, microphones, market uh, regulation mechanisms, trust systems, it doesn't matter if we don't use them. It's not going to matter a lick if we don't actually use it. So, and on that note, we're going to jump two more in uh, part two. So, we'll see you there.